Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Open Door Philosophy, a podcast that seeks to unpack a big philosophical thoughts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Ever the gentleman, because it's rodeo season in Houston, Texas. I'm Andrew Graziano, and with me is the benevolent Taylor Jones. Hello, everyone. And always trying to properly follow the rights... It's Derek Parsons, Mr. Parsons. Mm, you can't see me, but I'm bowing. Hello, everyone. And welcome to a very special episode 52 on the philosophy of Confucianism, our second part in a four-part series on Eastern philosophy. In our last episode, we covered Taoism, and we will be covering Confucianism now, uh, which I guess is a little mini arc as Taylor was telling us, I guess before we started, on kind of a Chinese uh, philosophy segment in our bigger arc of uh, Eastern philosophy too, which is pretty cool. Uh, Before we get rolling, how goes the trajectory of your life, guys? Well, I am in one of the busiest weeks of the semester because it is our midterm week, but I only have one exam tomorrow and then I'm on break, so light at the end of the tunnel for me right now. That's great. Silver lining, keep going. Uh, well, you know, this is the time of the year when I would normally give a big sigh and talk about research paper rough drafts. But really what I would like to talk about is the gigantic truckload of mulch in my driveway that I will be spreading around our mini gardens this weekend. So uh, I invite both of you to come over and help <laughs> help spread that mulch. There's plenty to go around. So uh you know, being the ever benevolent gentleman, I would like to uh, be generous in my invitation and welcome you to spreading the mulch. I will be home, so <laughs> no, I was just kidding. I mean, I'd love to see you. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I would never guilt you. I would never guilt you into uh, spreading mulch. I think I'm going to be out of the country uh, for the next few. <laughs> you know, just kidding. Well, Andrew, what's up with you, man? Well, you know, it's it's nothing new. Same old, same old. Time never stops in the void of nothing. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's very bleak. Yeah, it is very bleak. I mean, it's springtime, Andrew. It's the renewal it of everything. Springtime. It is the renewal of everything, including my worst enemy, which is pollen. Pollen. So, oh, yeah, um, seasonal allergies. Seasonal allergies. So I have been hit by a wave of tiredness for the past two days, and I will make it through, but I don't know at what cost. My car is practically turned green right now because of the pollen. Yeah. It's quite a, a North Houston experience. <laughs> Thankfully, in Waco, we are safe for the time being. (laughs) Yeah, you get cedar pollen up there. Yeah, but nothing's covered in yellow yet, which is a pleasant surprise because my seasonal allergies are bad. Well, good. You're coming home just in time. Yay. What a joy. You know, Taylor, I saw that you had a, a can of some kind of yellow beverage. What is this? A bubbly. It's bubbly. A bubbly. Mango flavored. Mango flavored. I, I've said this because I have a can of my favorite Canada Dry, so I think oh my gosh, <laughs> Mr. Parsons. So classic Canada Dry. <laughs> That's very fitting for your personality. Uh, it's the, my favorite drink by far. 
Canada Dry. Canada Dry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that strikes me. So I don't know funny. why this is funny. <laughs> <laughs> we should record in the evenings more often. This is great. You know, I just like to sit back and unwind and crack open a Canada Dry on the crack, crack a cold one with the boys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Of, of Canada Dry? Yeah, I'll bring some. I'll bring some when we record God. together. I'm, I'm having some good old-fashioned Hill Country Fair Natural Texas spring water. Oh, so it's classic. You, you both have me beat. No bubbles here. I also have a smoothie, <laughs> if you were wondering. Oh, Andrew. my gosh. You're like dual-wielding there. It's awesome. You know, when I hopped on the call, you were taking a sip, and I thought you were vaping. So that's why I was kind <laughs> of like, no! Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That only happens in high school bathrooms. <laughs> Not me. Oh my gosh. We need to follow the rights and get on with this episode. Well, let's move on. Let's move on. All right, everyone. Let's hop straight into an overview of Confucianism. Like Andrew said in the intro, it's one of the three largest ancient Chinese philosophies. And specifically, Confucianism is tied very strongly to governance and order, as we'll talk about in a little bit with the history of how the philosophy came to hold such high precedence. The other two large Chinese philosophies are Taoism, which we talked about last time, and then Buddhism, which we will be getting to as I think the next episode in our episode arc on eastern philosophies let me ask you i know taylor you know a lot about confucianism but before you knew about confucianism either one of you well both of you what was your if i had said like confucianism what comes to mind like what do you associate with confucianism Mm -hmm. like stereotypically or whatever for me this you can take this out but uh, there's this epic rap battles, Eastern versus Western philosophy. I don't know if uh-huh. you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I I, I'm pretty sure there's a Con- Confucius guy in there. So I think Confucius is in there. So that's what I think of. I, I, I don't know Confucianism that well at all. Uh, so, so that's why I think of well, I know. Something. That's why I asked the question. Epic rap battles is your only, <laughs> only association with Confucianism? I, I mean, I think. Yeah, just go, yeah. Okay, Taylor, what do you think? Before you knew about Confucianism, like studied it. My first exposure was probably like AP World History, and then Mm -hmm. you saying that it's basically the opposite of Taoism in most ways. Yeah, that's not totally fair on my part, but but it's an easy association to make. Uh, Yeah, for me, uh, I mean, I got to be honest, when I was your age so many centuries ago you are not that old i did not thank you i did not uh i didn't even know about confucianism i don't know but as i learned a little more i think about order and mm-hmm. uh structure and some of the stereotypical things i think of like gosh this is so corny but when i think of the disney movie mulan uh, and ritual and rites and family order and all those types of things. That's that's kind of what I stereotypically think about when I think about Confucianism. To compare it to Taoism, it deals a little bit more with human aspects and relationships between people than Taoism does. Because if you remember from our last episode, Taoism primarily focuses on nature. 
and following a natural order. And Confucianism is more relational between people Mm. than Taoism. And then one of the big ideas in Confucianism is the gentleman and what it means to be a virtuous person and how you should act within society. And then finally, Confucianism was an entire was not an entirely new philosophical concept, but it was more so a preservation of earlier traditional Chinese values. And then after the death of Confucius, it was extended on by Mencius and Zunzi and kind of cataloged and built upon. Now, I might be getting a- ahead of ourselves, but Confucius and Lao Tzu were apparently contemporaries of each other. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a degree of question about who exactly Lao Tzu was. Is Confucian to, uh, or is Confucius, to your knowledge, is, is he any better documented than Lao Tzu? Or does that make sense? Does that question make yeah. sense? I think he is because there's more evidence that he was a real person. And I think that Lao Tzu... It was more speculated whether he existed. Is that right? That there's not much document of Lao Tzu at all? I mean, there is. So, like, Lao Lao Tzu basically means master. Mm. Okay. And so it's not even really so much so a name. I don't know what Confucius means, actually, in Chinese, if it means anything. But there are reports that Lao Tzu and, and Confucius met each other a couple of times. But yeah, I, I, I asked that because, you know, you, you mentioned that Confucianism was certainly added to by the pre- predecessors of the original movement. And it was very similar with Taoism, where you had these followers of Lao Tzu and Taoism mm-hmm. that also like just really expanded on the philosophy in general. So I don't know, I just because Confucius was so much more associated with uh, the court Mm-hmm. I thought that he might have been perhaps maybe better documented. I think like he his existence. Was. I don't have much to relate it to with Lao Tzu, but yeah, he worked closely with the government during the Zhao dynasty, which I have um, noted for a little bit later, but he was a government advisor. So I would assume that he documented. Yeah. I don't know. If yeah. Sure what, one of my fun stories is to tell is uh, there is this apocryphal sort of story where Confucius and Lao Tzu, the, the first time they met each other, this is probably some Taoist propaganda, but that apparently Confucius said uh, when he met Lao Tzu, he said, today I met a dragon, which of course is a very powerful image in, in Chinese traditions. So at least apocryphally speaking, they met each other. All right. As I mentioned, we're going to talk just a little bit about Confucius himself because he is such an integral part to the formation of the philosophy because of his societal role. So he lived from 551 to 479 BCE in China, which um, just a fun fact is right before Socrates was born. And that was the Zhu dynasty, which was the spring and autumn period. And then that leads into the golden age of China. He was quoted as saying he was poor and from a lowly station, which made it really difficult in ancient China to hold high governance positions because government officials, the training that you needed was withheld to just the wealthy and the elite. And that was 
a big foundation for why he acted and felt as he did in the foundation of Confucianism and its impact because it later went on to lay a foundation for a merit-based civil service exam to make governance positions less exclusive. And in his lifetime, he worked to become a successful diplomat and he was skilled at dealing with problems of the law and he became an advisor to the ruling family in a period when China began to fracture and wealthy elites were gaining more power than some of the ruling family members had. Yeah, to really understand Confucianism, you really have to get into sort of this notion of understanding the Chinese bureaucracy as it existed back then. And what you mentioned about the civil service exam, one of the things I suppose that made the Han dynasty flourish, which is probably Mm -hmm. China's, well, it's very comparable to the Roman Empire, the Han dynasty, Zhao came before it, was this sort of open to classes that were outside of what you typically consider the aristocratic class. And um, Confucian and Taoism has a, a lot to do with those particular movements. One of the criticisms, and we might get to this later in the episode, is that Confucianism, however, is very elitist, mm-hmm. which is certainly different from Taoism, which was all about humility and taking the lowest place in society. So it'd be interesting to see to see how that plays in. But those are, I guess the other thing I'll say, just because I don't know where to fit it in, Taoism and Confucianism really are, at least at this point in history, the two pillars of, of Chinese society at the deepest levels. And it's interesting, actually, how the two of them intermingle together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like you had in one camp Confucius and other camp Taoist, uh, and they were like warring with each other or something. Certainly, they have opposing ideologies in some ways, but like a lot of similarities as well. And these two, which is why Yin Yang is such a perfect example, really underpin just so much of, of Chinese society, even still to this very day. Yeah. I think that's really seen in Chinese art throughout the dynastic eras that they're so tied to Taoist and Confucianist ideals, even with their presentation of nature and different um, temples are represented in art. So Taylor, with Taoism, we did ask if Taoism was a religion. And the answer to that was yes, but in a very strict sort of Chinese way that doesn't really or transcend China. Is Confucianism considered a religion? I don't think so. I was looking into this before the episode, and I think it's a lot like Taoism in that it's not clear cut the way that Western religions and philosophies, there's kind of a line drawn. And Mm -hmm. it's a pretty harsh line, I would say, in the West. And I don't think that Eastern philosophical tradition views religion the same way that we do. I know that there are Confucian temples and community and civic rituals took place there, but there aren't any Confucian deities. So I'm not sure where that line would be drawn. I'd be inclined to say it's not a religion, but I'm just not entirely sure on that. I think it's so interesting socially where we think of people and or philosophical or thought movements, I guess might be a more Mm -hmm. uh, accessible way to say that, that 
that takes such significance on, you know, for instance, Confucius as such an important person in Chinese society. I think maybe in the 20th and 21st century, we might be able to point towards someone like Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. or Mahatma Gandhi who are, or Mother Teresa, who people look to as, they don't view them as gods and they don't worship them, but they view them as just incredibly significant in their life, not only just personally, but as far as their community. And I don't know if that's the same for Confucian, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, but it kind of makes me think when you think, you know, sometimes people throw around this world like secular religion, I don't know exactly what people mean by that specifically when they use that term, but I can see how you would create sort of social rituals around these ideas, uh, but maybe not necessarily have a, a spiritual aspect to it other than you might consider the spirit of humanity or something like that mm-hmm. rather than say worshiping deities. But I think that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah no, I agree. I'm just thinking about, Confucianism seems to really promote kind of what is best for the community or the society. Mm-hmm. And I, I was doing some, I'm not as familiar with this, first of all, as, as either of you, but I was, I was doing some research on this and I found that the state was trying to use ideas from Confucianism uh, to create kind of or maintain cohesive social orders. Uh, They were, emperors were giving or paying for Confucian lectures to go on during these villages to promote things like having chaste wives and having really loyal sons uh, to the communities. They're paying for uh, Confucian books to be published. Uh, And so I think that's, that sounds really interesting conservative, not in the political sense, but just uh, in a kind of social cohesion and yeah, social cohesion sense. And that does not sound too far off to me from some Roman principles. Like you're ta- like mm-hmm. we've talked about some Greek principles too. I mean, this maintenance of, of the society or the, of the community is important. Yeah. When you say social cohesion and, and we're getting ready to get into this, So when I think about Confucianism, I think about what is proper Mm -hmm. or what is respectful or what is ritual. Ritual has a really heavy sort of connotation in the West, but it's just simply what what should be followed. And for there to be social harmony, and Andrew, you'll love this because I know you love roles. Everyone should have a role. There's a relationship between every single human being, depending on their station in life, what they are, as far as their roles in society. And there's a there's a protocol to be followed. I So I think of this in terms of probably something we've all experienced. And that's like, say, going to a doctor's office. And when you go into a doctor's office, there's a number of chairs available for you to wait for your name to be called. And let's say just for this example, there's three chairs, right? And so here you are, you're there, you're sitting in one chair and then another person comes in and they sit in another chair, but they have a backpack and they throw their, they throw their backpack in the third chair. And then the third person comes into the room. What should that person who just threw their backpack in the chair do? They should pick up their backpack and let that person sit there. 
Or if all three chairs are full with people and someone elderly comes in and they don't have anywhere to sit, like what should someone do? They should stand up and let the elderly person sit there. In fact, all three of them should like get up and like, please take our chair. And this is something that's very simple, like sitting in a chair. And there's certain, there's certain relationships that exist there. If a person is elderly, if a person is a child, if a person is perhaps you know, physically disabled and are, are, are using a walker or something like that, there should be some sort of deference rather than someone just like throwing their backpack in the other chair and being like, I can sit wherever I want and I can do whatever I want. This isn't like a, I can do whatever I want sort of situation with Confucianism. It's there's, there's an importance between who you are and what role you have in society and how you exist in relation to that particular person. And I think all of what we're getting ready to talk about will sort of bear out. Maybe it's not the best example I could come up with, but, but I think about that particular example of like, like when someone elderly comes into the room and there's no chairs left, you get up. And I don't think anyone really questions that, but there's like people that might not think about doing that. And that's the beauty of Confucianism is that it establishes protocol for these types of situations. This sounds a lot like some of these core beliefs and tenets, Taylor. From, from my research, this sounds a lot like the idea of these social rituals is related to this concept of Ren. Mm-hmm. Is that pronounced somewhat correctly, Ren. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Taylor? In general, it's the idea of human virtue and piety. And in Confucian belief, you need to nurture virtue and be practiced in it. That's tied to education and more of a education in character and being well-rounded as a human and not just an intellectual. There's this great, I I think a great quote from the, is it the Analects? The Mm -hmm. Analects. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I guess we should say that. The the primary Confucian (laughs) text is called the Analects. The Analects. We'll have that link in the episode description. There's this Analects 2.4, I guess, is is the notation uh, from Confucius. He writes, at 15, I set my heart on learning. At 30, I was firmly established. At 40, I had no more doubts. At 50, I knew the will of heaven. At 60, I was ready to listen to it. At 70, I could follow my heart's desire without transgressing what was right. And so seeing this kind of balance, I guess, there, the nurturing, the conformity of the roles about learning. First, he wanted to learn, and then the second the cultivation of kind of his inner self. Now we mentioned this previous episode with Dao De Jing. Da means virtue in Chinese. And we talked about how virtue has, for those of us, especially in philosophy, has such an Aristotelian, such a Greek uh, or Greco sort of reference point for us with virtue. You know, I wonder about translation and stuff like that, exactly what they mean by virtue but I think at the end of the day, it's just doing largely what's right according to a certain set of principles. And I can't help but think about the Greeks, Plato, Aristotle, Arist- uh, especially Aristotle, talking about cultivating virtue. And Confucianism is not terribly 
different in this respect. Mm-hmm. It's that you can become a more virtuous person by becoming educated. If you think about Aristotle, the beginning of all knowledge is knowing thyself, that you can become more virtuous by working on yourself um, and being mindful of those things. I think Confucianism kind of supports a similar notion. I get the same impression. What I think here is cool too is like saying it's it's the education that comes first. Yeah. Uh, it rem- reminds me a lot of Plato too. I want to cite my sources now. It's Plato Republic book. Well, I guess it's probably three, four, five, six, where he's discussing education. I mean, the education comes first, right? Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not the enlightenment that comes, and then you can learn. It's that. Well, I, I guess in a full sense, but you have to get educated first. You have to uh, want to want to learn, and so uh, I think that definitely that process is shared by by the Greeks. Hey, you know, Andrew, back to your 4.2 quote. At 40, I came free from doubts. At 50, I understood the decree of heaven. Uh, guys, I'm getting ready to really understand the decree of heaven <laughs> in less than a month. Finally, <laughs> the decree of heaven. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. You're somewhere between setting your hearts on learning and taking your stand. I don't even know if I've gotten that far. There's a, there's a lot of crossovers with Stoicism, too, I think. Yeah. I just think of, um, again, cultivating the virtues. But there's this notion, well, this is very connected with Taoism, too, but like the way you become more virtuous is getting over or letting go of self-interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so let's see, what is it? It's... Uh, I think it's 12.1. 12 is a big one. Book 12, man, there's lots of stuff mm-hmm. in there in book 12. Yeah, in 12.1 it says, if for a single day a man could return to the observance of the rights through overcoming himself, then the whole empire would consider benevolence to be his. So just like with um, other Eastern philosophies, especially Taoism, but also Stoicism, we kind of see this notion of letting go of the ego and letting go of self-interest and the more you can do that the more you more virtuous you become yeah and i think that's pretty similar to buddhism too at least with desire Mm -hmm. that one of the four core pillars or tenets is that desire is the cause of all suffering yeah and it's really interesting that we see that same idea repeated over and over and over again throughout a lot of the history of philosophy not even just ancient Eastern philosophies. Yeah, it's amazing how so many of the great wisdom traditions throughout the world seem to be on the same page about a a couple of different ideas, you know, such as possessions are a problem, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. ego is a problem. It all keeps us from our true selves. All right, so Ming. Yes, I'm trying to find... The passage where it talks about it. My copy has the each of the verses, but then it also has commentary on the verses where it kind of explains. Mm. Oh, I spelled it wrong. It's supposed to be Ning with an N. That's oh, that's okay. Um, okay. The commentary says, We have seen how he attempts to drive a wedge between two qualities. Ren now sa- stands for true inner virtue. 
in Ning for its superficial counterfeit, rendered glibness mm. everywhere in this translation. It kind of seems reminiscent of bad faith mm. acting in a superficial way that attempts piety but falls short because of the intrinsic motivation behind it, at least from my understanding. No, that's right. I can't remember. I can't quote book and verse, but uh, I do remember that Confucius is rather harsh when he speaks about people who act pious but really aren't. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is the note from 5.5. I guess I can read it because it's pretty interesting on what it has to say about eloquence. Yeah. It says, someone said, Zhang Gong is good, but not eloquent. The master said, of what use is eloquence? If you go about responding to everyone with a clever tongue, you will often incur resentment. I do not know whether Zhang Gong is good, but of what use is eloquence? That's funny. I mean, it's so true. Like, this is such a fundamental truth. <laughs> I don't know if fundamental truth is the right word. This is like such an observable thing in, in just being human, right? You got people who can talk a good game and mm -hmm. sometimes you can, like, it's so obvious. You can just see right through what they're saying. And yeah, you're like, I don't know if they're a good person or not, but you know what they're saying? Well, they're, they're full of it mm -hmm. um, and they're full of themselves and it's a total sham. Yeah. It's just funny that, you know, the same type of things being called out 2,500 years ago. Socrates was a huge critic of this type of person too, with the sophists and rhetoricians, mm. oh, they yeah. could just argue about anything to no end with no knowledge. And they could make a good sounding speech, but it wasn't virtuous. And it didn't have any sound foundation to it. Well, tell us a bit about when. I pulled the section where it talks about this, 515. But basically, Wynne is talking about the cultured person. 515 says, Zing Gong asked, Why was Kong Wenzi accorded the title cultured, or Wynne? The master replied, He was diligent and loved learning, and was not ashamed to ask advice from his inferiors. This is why he was accorded the title cultured. So we're seeing, similar to the idea of education, that culture doesn't just mean knowledge of something, but it's a little bit deeper than that, that you lack like this deep rooted shame to not know something and being inquisitive and consistently pursuing learning and not stopping once you think you know enough. I'm really drawn to the humility aspect of this as well. He was diligent, mm -hmm. loved learning. I was not ashamed to ask advice from his inferiors and is it is this very thing that accorded him this title cultured that's mm -hmm. certainly boy that's such a that's such a hot button sort of word in the west when you yeah. say someone's cultured you're you're indicating all kinds of things about them and that can sometimes be tied to perhaps economic station or even even race what we mean by oh that person sounds so cultured that's interesting i wonder if that's in my translation, which we do have different translations, Taylor, I can tell by just the quotes we've used together. It says cultured in my, in my text as well. 
But I suppose there's a humility aspect, which humility was a big part of Confucianism. Yeah. That humility is is an aspect there that if you are someone who's genuinely interested in learning things, and if by this definition, learning things is to become cultured, then yeah, the person who's willing to ask questions, uh, the mm-hmm. person who's willing to seek the advice of people, whether they're they're inferiors or not, whether it's someone who's far superior to them and whatever metric we're using to use that phrase. Yeah, that indicates a, a specific level of, it's more about, uh, I'm about the learning rather than is uh, I'm about my particular reputation or what people think of me in terms of my intelligence. So yeah, I like that. Is the analects a story? Is it mm. a... Is it a bunch of kind of poems like the Tao Te Ching? Mm. Can you tell Can you tell me a little bit about what's the writing style like? Yeah, I would most compare it to Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. It's not necessarily a story, but it seems kind of conversational. It's organized into chapters by theme. But I'm not sure how much, how chronological it is. And it's just some short statements, usually two to three sentences. Sometimes they're a little bit longer. And it seems like it's a lot of question and answer formatted between a student and the master. Yeah, so there's 20 books in the Analects. And like Taylor said, they're very short. Each book is usually two or three or four pages long. Uh, maybe five or six, but they're not very long at all. Yeah, a lot of just terse sort of statements between uh, master and student. You could maybe find threads of topics. Say like take book four, for example, I marked that verse one through six are all about benevolence. But then you get to verse seven, it's like, well, we've changed topics. So we get a couple of random topics. And then, you know, then you get to uh, verses 18 through 21. Well, those are all about family. But then, like, you know, it shifts gears after that, too. So kind of that's a good comparison, Taylor, to Marcus Aurelius. You know, you read the meditations by Aurelius, and there are are portions where some of those things, uh, some of the entries, some of the verses kind of hang together. But there is no, there's no real rhyme or reason to it. There's no overriding organizational structure to it. It's just uh, a, a collection of very wise sayings uh, from Confucius and, and his followers. Well, how about this? Family is it's a great example of how Confucianism structures roles in society. So let's talk about the family for a minute as an example of that. Yeah, I think one of the things that stands out to me the most is that families set up in a lot of ways as a microcosm for social and societal responsibilities, that each person has a role in the family, but their familial role also coincides in a way to their social role in larger society. So men are expected to lead their families and lead well and perform duties like protecting their wife and have a specific relation to their parents but they're also expected to lead a lot in a lot of ways in the larger society. And women are expected to respect their husband and respect their husband's family and stay home more than a man would being involved in society. So what's an example maybe of, I know you mentioned husband and wife, um, how about children to, to father? What are some, uh, what's an example of the types of, 
roles or respect that's supposed to be a part of that? I'm not specifically sure on that, but I do know that all members of a family are supposed to respect their elders. And as you go up in age, or like, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but elders in a family have a reverence for them. And then that's kind of tied into the idea of ancestral worship so that Mm. ancestors are also more revered than living members of a family. Yeah. I have a couple of funny quotes here about family. Well, let me read a serious one about family and then I'll read a couple of funny ones. Uh, so, so family, uh, again, like I said, book four had a number of them. 4.18, the master said, in serving your father and mother, you ought to dissuade them from doing wrong in the gentlest way. Oh, if you mm-hmm. see your advice being ignored, you should not become disobedient, but remain reverent. You should not complain, even if in doing so you wear yourself out. So there's a great example there, I think, of mm-hmm. how even if you see perhaps that your parents might be doing something wrong, I'm sure this would be if you were an older mm-hmm. child, that if you do try to correct them, you do so in the most gentlest way. And and if they ignore it, well, suck it up, um, because it's not your place really to go any further than that. Yeah. My translation says, follow their lead diligently without resentment. Mm. I think that adds an interesting level to say, adding, don't resent your father or your mother for not following what you want. It's still your responsibility to follow them. Uh, This could be reserved for the end too, but I'll start with this question first. Let me make a note for the second point. Okay, so... Uh, The fact that Confucius is not encouraging a child to disobey their parents who might be doing something wrong kind of suggests to me the absence of kind of like this metaphysical kind of good or this metaphysical truth that's behind things that's making a certain path of action better than another. The reason I'm thinking of that is because it would seem, well, One, it would seem to me that if there was something kind of undergirding all of this or whatever, then he would be encouraging kind of disrespect or not disrespect, disobedience, maybe or stronger encouragement or something. I'm thinking of like in the Gospels, uh, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Christ encourages if someone's not going with the truth, then it's cut them off or whatever. And so that's. Can you tell me a little bit about this? What is the metaphysics that undergird this? That's what I'm curious about, you know? <laughs> like, why do I, why this, why does Confucius think this is true? Is it just to protect the society? Like, this is what's best for us? Or is there something that's like deep? Mr. Parsons, do you want to take that one? <laughs> sure. I think I have an answer, like at least a partial answer. Just like when the Tao Te Ching was put together, it was a period of governmental instability and and not only governmental, but societal instability. And so there was definitely a idea that order helps create harmony and harmony is considered a good. And in order for everyone to have harmony, the everyone needs to work together. The if I'm going to go the Aurelius route, just like an upper and lower jaw, a set of teeth, you know, fit together. All society, the more they work together, the more harmonious things are. Mm. 
But to try to get a little more metaphysical, so we haven't really talked about it in depth yet, so maybe this is it, but the concept of the Tao. So the Tao is obviously part of Taoism. It's in the title, but it's this notion of the way, right? The path to virtue, the way, the Tao. And the Tao is a part of both Confucianism and Taoism. So let me talk about how those two are, are similar and, and different. In Confucianism, the way, Tao, refers to this moral and ethical path that individuals should follow to live a virtuous life and contribute to the well-being of society. That's what it is to live a virtuous life, to contribute to the well-being of society. So Confucius believed that, like in this way, it involved a set of moral principles that were outlined. I mean, we'll get to the gentleman here in a minute, but the gentleman was an example of the most virtuous person that you could be without being a sage. Mm -hmm. So it was involved in a set of moral principles and social norms that were based on relationships between individuals like father-son, ruler, subjects, and the obligations of rulers and, and subjects and parents and children and all that. In Taoism, the way, Tao, again, is more broadly understood as like the natural order or the flow of the universe, which is very different in a way than like, say, the rules that we impose for our, our harmonious society, although they kind of get at the same sort of thing. So Taoists believe that Everything in the world is interconnected and constantly changing, and that the key to living a fulfilling life is to align oneself with those natural rhythms and patterns of the universe. Confucius just thought those natural rhythms and patterns of the universe happen to be living a virtuous life, contributing to a well-ordered society. So in both of these philosophical traditions involves letting go of the ego and letting go of desire and living in harmony with the Tao. They both just sort of approach it in a different way. So, so the concept of Tao or the way has different meanings, but it's still central to an important idea of both Confucianism and, and Taoism. So, uh, I mean, I guess the only thing a man can do that is worthwhile is to become as good a man as possible, which is very Aristotelian in a way. Morality must be pursued for its own sake because in being moral, there's no guarantee of success or reward, which is kind of deontological in a way. Doing the right thing, the right action is the right thing to do, whether the consequences end up being good. I don't know. That's my best metaphysical stab at it. It was kind of a ramble. I hope that made, <laughs> I hope that made sense. Hey, let's get to this gentleman, Dill. Who's the gentleman? He's all over this book. He is. The gentleman is basically the epitome of the virtuous person. There's a lot of places where Confucius outlines what the gentleman would and wouldn't do. This is on the same page that Mr. Parsons just read from. It's 4.24. The master said, the gentleman wishes to be slow to speak, but quick to act. In a lot of ways, the gentleman is an exemplar for what we're supposed to embody as members of a society, regardless of your specific role, it's something that everybody should strive for. Yeah, lots of really wise sayings about the gentleman. 4.16, the gentleman understands what is moral, the small man understands what is profitable. So again, we get to that idea of like virtue is greater than any sort of like types of possessions we might have or something like that. I also had 5.16 noted. 
the master said of Zycan, of the virtues that constitute the way of the gentleman, he possessed four. In the way he conducted himself, he displayed reverence. In the way he served his superiors, he displayed respect. In the way he cared for the common people, he displayed benevolence. And in the way he employed the people, he displayed rightness. And I think that gives us some of the four biggest virtues and kind of sums up a lot of what Confucius argues about the virtuous man is that they're reverent, respectful, benevolent, and have this moral rightness about them. Mm. Yeah, they embody this moral quality of like compassion and kindness. And like you said, duty, they follow the rights. Uh, They're aware of what the rights are and they have no issue with following them. They have no ego wrapped up in that type of stuff. And all that results in what Confucius or the Analects refer to frequently as benevolence. And benevolence is kind of like the highest virtue that all other virtues flow from, like compassion, kindness, and humanity towards others. In the note for this verse, it has a quote from Zycan saying, that there's no greater misfortune than to lack civil or cultural virtue, but to have military success, which I think is really interesting in a period where with the fragmentation of Chinese states, military success would have been really important. But like in the Tao Te Ching, you see that being virtuous and an upright person is more important than military success if that comes at the price of morality and virtue. Yeah, I was listening to, I was doing some research for this episode, I was listening to a podcast about Confucianism, and it talked about one of the contradictions maybe, at least in in our modern times, is that this notion of sort of macho-ness that comes along with Confucianism of being a a strong person, especially being a strong man, and I do kind of want to get to that in a second. Confucianism, while a a big part of Chinese culture, uh, is also one that's sort of wrapped up in gender roles. But before we get to that, uh, yeah, it's sort of up this macho-ness of being powerful, uh, taking control of situations, how well that necessarily translates to today. Obviously, we're not going to talk about warfare, that warfare is a way to preserve the dignity of your family, although in certain cases, of course, I guess it is. But we're in a very different time period than the period of warring states. So, you know, one of those questions, sort of a hermeneutic sort of situation is like how how does that translate to today i have no answer and that's not really a question i just think it's uh, something to think about when you think of these ancient texts and in this case with confucianism this sort of macho aspect that comes along with it if macho is even the right word probably not let me give a few more quotes about benevolence and gentlemen remember the gentleman exemplifies benevolence so this is all from the beginning of book four Uh, the master said of neighborhoods benevolence is the most beautiful how can the man be considered wise who, when he has the choice, does not settle in benevolence? And then verse two, the master said, the benevolent man is attracted to benevolence because he feels at home in it. And then a short one, four, four, the master said, if a man sets his heart on benevolence, he will be free from evil. So similar to like, I guess, with the Tao Te Ching, where we, where the sage is this figure that everyone sort of looks towards as exemplifying the greatest virtues of Taoism. Although a sage is mentioned in Confucianism, it's, it's typically the gentleman who embodies benevolence, which is really the, the exemplar to look to. 
it's obviously geared towards the male being the figurehead of really any yeah relationship whether that's family whether that's government other things in society let's talk about it yeah one of the things that struck me on this uh confucianism podcast i was listening to is the guy began with a quote about the gentleman but he changed it to the gentle person mm-hmm. and uh mm. and i have no i have no issues with that but obviously the intent there was to make it more encompassing for both groups because but both sexes because you know philosophy is not for one particular sex uh it's for everyone whatever their gender is uh, mark that is like the worst introduction to talking about gender <laughs> on our show in 52 episodes yeah I can't remember if we read it in the Analects because when we did this unit in my class, we read the Analects and Banzao's Rules for Women or Lessons for Women um, at the same time or like one after Mm -hmm. another. And I know that from that same period, she talks a lot about, of course, where a woman should be in society. And even though she did advocate for female education, it was for the purpose of better fulfilling her societal role. Mm -hmm. And so even when women became educated, it was so that they could be better at serving their family, which I think is such an interesting juxtaposition because you wouldn't think to be educated, to stay in a role that is not necessarily freeing would go together in that way. I think maybe the larger question here is what, what should one give up in order to maintain societal harmony? Like we see this even in our own country with race relations, gender relations. When should someone pick it in March and all of that for any of those sort of situations that upsets the social harmony? Uh, if it is in fact social harmony, people usually do that when it seems that social harmony is out of whack. But yeah, it's a great question, right? It's like like this really gets down to the the question of what do you gosh, is the word sacrifice the right word? Sacrifice in order to maintain social harmony. Mm-hmm. This people uh, can feel free to disagree with this too, but well, but it's not a good way to transition into what I'm about to say, but this is why I am pressing so hard probably annoyingly about these metaphysics that undergird that's probably not even a word right undergird that no, under, that's a word undergird all okay. the time that undergird i probably picked it up from you, you uh, <laughs> now i'm wondering if it's a word <laughs> all right google that, yeah please check before i embarrass myself Yes, to secure or fashion from the underside, especially by a rope or chain passed underneath. (laughs) Undergear. Formally, to provide support or a firm basis. Okay, that's perfect. Boom. (gasps) This is why I've been so annoying in the past few episodes about the, uh, the metaphysics behind all of these ideas. What undergirds these philosophies uh, and these kind of statements that we're, we're hearing about all these principles, because I think if we're not discussing like these root, these metaphysics, like uh, are Confucianists 
this this was my big thing about this, right? Like, are Confucianists thinking that there's some truth to the idea that women need to have this certain social role? Like, do they think this is a universal truth? Do they, do they think that's inherent in women? If that's the case, then, you know, that's something that we can debate about now and that can influence like our acceptance of these beliefs now. But if it's like kind of an anthropologic, if we're looking back in Confucianism is like in our society now, this is what we think in whatever, in the fourth century or fifth century BCE, this is what we think will give our society the strongest foundational roles and keep us from dying then like it's like okay well we can look back anthropologically and view these this like as a culture belief kind of thing but it's not really a philosophy maybe we can take principles from but we can't really say much about today so this is why i've been so annoying about it and i think it's like when we're talking about this question of like gender and how oppressive this idea seems it's like you know this is kind of an important uh distinction that we need to make about it i don't know the answer yeah i mean it certainly seems oppressive in our sort of liberalized western conception modern liberalized western conception of gender roles oh yeah this week we've got some listener mail this time a question about a quote from the Taylor and Mr. Parsons versus ChatGPT game we played the last episode. Christos writes in, I love Open Door Philosophy. I've been a big fan of the podcast since the beginning. I love the game Andrew made up Nietzsche, Socrates, or ChatGPT. Christos is, says that he's not aware that altruism is be- of the quote, altruism is becoming someone else, egoism is becoming yourself. Maybe just a poor translation of something Nietzsche did right. He gave also in the email a kind of uh, linguistic account of the word altruism, saying that it came from a French word in the 1800s. Uh, And then Christos continues, you have also shown deep understanding and charity towards Nietzsche. So overall, you have been fair despite your Christianity, JK. I know the podcast doesn't get into details for too long, so I don't ask for another Nietzsche episode. Episode 9 was great, and there are so many philosophers we want to hear you all talk about. I love your perspectives on philosophy in general and on each philosopher you've considered on the show. Thank you very much for your email, Christos. Oh, geez. Thanks, Christos. Thank you for writing in. It sounds like you're a big, big Nietzsche guy, so... And you also sent us a great book recommendation. So thank you so much for that. Really, it's uh, quite a blessing because I've been on a little bit of an intro to Nietzsche saga lately. So thank you. Yeah, you're all about the Nietzsche all of a sudden. Yeah, I guess I should address address my mess, my uh, bad translation uh, idea, right? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I believe that I got this quote i could be wrong i could have missed i could have also misquoted it i went back to try to find it and uh i didn't have it marked or anything but i got it from this introduction series on a lot of philosophy called very short introductions uh they have a book on nietzsche that i've been reading and i think i got it from there let me try to find the author Michael Tanner. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I got it from something in Michael Tanner, but I very well could have mis, miswritten it. I will say, I th- I think it was from either Beyond Good and Evil, 
where Nietzsche is talking about these English psychologists or something, and he's and he's talking about how they've kind of screwed things up or, or something. Or it's from Twilight of the Idols or something. I can't really remember. It also could be I was around the same time I was also reading Martha Nussbaum's very, very unpopular for Nietzsche, but someone who I really, really love article called Pity and Mercy, Nietzsche Stoicism, where she heavily, heavily rails against Nietzsche for, uh, she uses the word altruism. So she's not a Nietzsche scholar by any means. So I definitely could see either me or one of these translations screwing it up. Uh, But thank you for for bringing that up, Christos. Yep. We love a good sharp eye or I guess sharp ear. Sharp ear. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a great reminder, guys. If anyone has anything you want to write in about episodes, corrections or thoughts about the episode or just your own philosophical wanderings, we'd love to engage with you and, and mention you on the show. So thanks so much. Well, all right, guys, that's it for today. We thank you so much for embodying the role of being a good listener. Gentle people are always interested in improving themselves. See what you did there. Uh, yeah, of course. If you didn't see what I did there, then no, wait, that would be insulting and not pious. And if this episode helps you anyway towards the fulfillment of yourself, of course, we're so happy to be a part of that. That's all just a corny way of saying, hey, thanks for listening. We hope it uh, did some good for you. That's right. We'd really love to hear your thoughts on Confucianism, whether that be on our socials, on Twitter or Instagram. We haven't made a MySpace yet, I guess. That's crazy. We're not making a MySpace. (laughs) We'll discuss that more. (laughs) Uh, Or on, and I think we have a TikTok too now. Oh, God, Uh, we do. Yeah. (laughs) What it's worth. And I think we do some cool polls there, so definitely check that out. Uh, but you can also feel free to email us at contact at openworldphilosophy.com. We absolutely love getting emails there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. And the quick thank you to always, always Kevin McLeod for the use of his free music. We hear in the intro and outro, always, always. It's great. At your next pep rally, make sure to play some Kevin McLeod. And as always... <laughs> Whenever your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Okay, see ya. See y'all next time for episode part three, right? Part three. Here, how about I ask you this this next question? Okay. To 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 spring it off. Okay, spring it off. What a great phrase. <laughs> it's like a bad Taylor Swift lyric. All right. <laughs> <laughs>